Chapter 26 of the Epistle of St. Paul to the Romans by Handley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Christian Duty, Details of Personal Conduct. Romans 12, 9 to 21. St. Paul has set before us the life of surrender, of the giving over of faculty to God in one great preliminary aspect. The fair ideal, meant always for a watchful and hopeful realization, has been held aloft. It is a life whose motive is the Lord's compassions, whose law of freedom is his will, whose inmost aim is, without envy or interference, towards our fellow servants, to finish the work he hath given us to do. Now into this noble outline are to be poured the details of personal conduct which in any and every line and field are to make the characteristics of the Christian. As we listen again, we will again remember that the words are levelled not at a few, but at all who are in Christ. The beings indicated here are not the chosen names of a church calendar, nor are they the passionless inhabitants of a utopia. They are all who, in Rome of old, in England now, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, and are living out this wonderful but most practical life in the straight line of their Father's will. As if he could not heap the golden words too thickly together, St. Paul dictates here with even unusual abruptness and terseness of expression. He leaves syntax very much alone, gives us noun and adjective and lets them speak for themselves, we will venture to render as nearly verbatim as possible. The English will inevitably seem more rough and crude than the Greek, but the impression given will be truer on the whole to the original than a fuller rendering would be. Verse 9 to verse 14. Your love unaffected, abominating the ill, wedded to the good, for your brotherly kindness full of mutual home affection, for your honour, your code of precedence, deferring to one another, for your earnestness, not slothful, for the spirit, as regards your possession and use of the divine indweller, glowing, for the Lord, bond-serving, for your hope, that is to say, as to the hope of the Lord's return, rejoicing, for your affliction, enduring, for your prayer, persevering, for the wants of the saints, for the poverty of fellow Christians, communicating, sharing, a yet nobler thing than the mere giving, which may ignore the sacred fellowship of the provider and the receiver. Hospitality, prosecuting, as with a studious cultivation. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. This was a solemnly appropriate precept for the community over which, eight years later, the first great persecution was to break in blood and fire and vapour of smoke and no doubt there was abundant present occasion for it, even while the scene was comparatively tranquil. Every modern mission field can illustrate the possibilities of a persecution, which may be altogether private, or which at most may touch only a narrow neighbourhood, which may never reach the point of technical outrage, yet may apply a truly fiery trial to the faithful convert. Even in circles of our decorous English society is no such thing known as the persecution of a life not conformed to this world, though the assault or torture may take forms almost invisible and impalpable, except to the sensibilities of the object of it. For all such cases, as well as for the confessor on the rack and the martyr in the fire, this precept holds expressly, bless, do not curse. In Christ, find possible the impossible, let the resentment of nature die at his feet, in the breath of his love. Verse 15. 
to rejoice with the rejoicing and to weep with the weeping. Holy duties of the surrendered life too easily forgotten. Alas, there is such a phenomenon, not altogether rare, as a life whose self-surrender in some main aspects cannot be doubted, but which utterly fails in sympathy. A certain spiritual exaltation is allowed actually to harden, or at least to seem to harden the consecrated heart, and the man who perhaps witnesses for God with a prophet's ardour is yet not one to whom the mourner would go for tears and prayer in his bereavement, or the child for a perfectly human smile in its play. But this is not as the Lord would have it be. If indeed the Christian has given his body over, it is that his eyes and lips and hands may be ready to give loving tokens of fellowship in sorrow, and what is less obvious, in gladness too, to the human hearts around him. Verse 16. Feeling the same thing towards one another, animated by a happy identity of sympathy and brotherhood, not haughty in feeling, but full of lowly sympathies, accessible in an unaffected fellowship to the poor and social inferior, the weak and the defeated, and again to the smallest and homeliest interests of all. It was the Lord's example, the little child, the wistful parent, the widow with her mites, the poor fallen woman of the street who could lead away his blessed sympathies with a touch, while he responded with an unbroken majesty of gracious power, but with a kindness for which condescension seems a word far too cold and distant. Verse 17. Do not get to be wise in your own opinion. Be ready always to learn. Dread the attitude of mind, too possible even for the man of earnest spiritual purpose, which assumes that you have nothing to learn and everything to teach, which makes it easy to criticize and to discredit, and which can prove an altogether repellent thing to the observer from outside, who is trying to estimate the gospel by its adherent and advocate. Requiting no one evil for evil, safe from the spirit of retaliation in your surrender to him, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, threatened not, taking forethought for good in the sight of all men, not letting habits, talk, expenses, drift into inconsistency, watching with open and considerate eyes against what others may fairly think to be unchristian in you. Here is no counsel of cowardice, no recommendation of slavery to a public opinion, which may be altogether wrong. It is a precept of loyal jealousy for the heavenly master's honour. His servant is to be nobly indifferent to the world's thought and word, where he is sure that God and the world antagonize. But he is to be sensitively attentive to the world's observation, where the world, more or less acquainted with the Christian precept or principle, and more or less conscious of its truth and right, is watching maliciously, or it may be wistfully, to see if it governs the Christian's practice. In view of this, the man will never be content even with the satisfaction of his own conscience. He will set himself not only to do right, but to be seen to do it. He will not only be true to a monetary trust, for example, he will take care that the proofs of his fidelity shall be open. He will not only mean well towards others, he will take care that his manner and bearing, his dealings and intercourse, shall unmistakably breathe the Christian air. Verse 18. If possible, as regards your side, the your is as emphatic as possible in position and in meaning, living at peace with all men, yes, even in pagan and hostile Rome. A peculiarly Christian principle speaks here. The men who had given over their bodies a living sacrifice might think, imaginably, that their duty was to court the world's enmity, to tilt, as it were, against its spears, as if the one supreme call was to collide, to fall, and to be glorified. But this would be fanaticism, and the gospel is never fanatical, for it is the law of love. 
the surrendered christian is not as such an aspirant for even a martyr's fame but the servant of god and man if martyrdom crosses his path it is met as duty but he does not court it as eclat and what is true of martyrdom is of course true of every lower and milder form of the conflict of the church and of the christian in the world nothing more nobly evidences the divine origin of the gospel than this essential precept as far as it lies with you live peaceably with all men such wise and kind forbearance and neighbourliness would never have been bound up with the belief of supernatural powers and hopes if those powers and hopes had been the mere issue of human exaltation of natural enthusiasm the supernatural of the gospel leads to nothing but rectitude and considerateness in short to nothing but love between man and man and why because it is indeed divine, it is the message and gift of the living Son of God in all the truth and majesty of his rightfulness. All too early in the history of the church, the crown of martyrdom became an object of enthusiastic ambition, but that was not because of the teaching of the crucified, nor of his suffering apostles. Verse 19 to verse 21. Not avenging yourselves, beloved. No, give place to the wrath. Let the angry opponent, the dread persecutor, have his way, so far as your resistance or retaliation is concerned. Beloved, let us love, 1 John 4, 7, with that strong and conquering love which wins by suffering, and do not fear lest eternal justice should go by default. There is one who will take care of that matter. You may leave it with him, for it stands written, Deuteronomy 32, 35, To me belongs vengeance, I will recompense, saith the Lord. But if... And again he quotes the older scriptures, finding in the Proverbs 25, 21-22, the same oracular authority as in the Pentateuch. But if thy enemy is hungry, give him food. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For so doing thou wilt heap coals of fire on his head. Taking the best way to the only vengeance which a saint can wish, namely your enemy's conviction of his wrong, the rising of a burning shame in his soul, and the melting of his spirit in the fire of love. Be not thou conquered by the evil, but conquer in the good the evil. In the good, as if surrounded by it, moving invulnerable in its magic circle, through the contradiction of sinners, the provoking of all men, the thought is just that of Psalm 31, 18 and 19. How great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. The good of this sentence of St. Paul's is no vague and abstract thing. It is the gift of God. 6.28 It is the life eternal found and possessed in union with Christ, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Practically, it is not it but he, the Roman convert, who should find it more than possible to meet his enemy with love, to do him positive good in his need, with a conquering simplicity of intention, was to do so not so much by an internal conflict between his better self and his worse, as by the living power of Christ received in his whole being by abiding in him. It is so now and for ever. The open secret of divine peace and love is what it was, as necessary, as versatile, as victorious. And its path of victory is as straight and as sure as of old. And the precept to tread that path, daily and hourly, if occasion calls, is still as divinely binding as it ever was for the Christian, if indeed he has embraced the mercies of God and is looking to his Lord to be ever more transfigured by the renewing of his mind. As we review this rich field of the flowers and of the gold of holiness, 
This now completed paragraph of epigrammatic precepts, some leading and pervading principles emerge. We see first that the sanctity of the gospel is no hushed and cloistered indifferentism. It is a thing intended for the open field of human life, to be lived out before the sons of men. A strong positive element is in it. The saint is to abominate the evil, not only to depreciate it and deplore. He is to be energetically in earnest. He is to glow with the spirit and to rejoice in the hope of glory. He is to take practical, provident pains to live not only aright, but manifestly aright in ways which all men can recognize. Again, his life is to be essentially social. He is contemplated as one who meets other lives at every turn, and he is never to forget or neglect his relation to them. Particularly in the Christian society, he is to cherish the family affection of the gospel, to defer to fellow Christians in a generous humility, to share his means with the poor among them, to welcome the strangers of them to his house. He is to think it a sacred duty to enter into the joys and the sorrows round him. He is to keep his sympathies open for despised people and for little matters. Then again, and most prominently after all, he is to be ready to suffer and to meet suffering with a spirit far greater than that of only resignation. He is to bless his persecutor. He is to serve his enemy in ways most practical and active. He is to conquer him for Christ in the power of a divine communion. Thus, meanwhile, the life so positive, so active in its effects, is to be essentially all the while a passive, bearing, enduring life. Its strength is to spring not from the energies of nature, which may or may not be vigorous in the man, but from an internal surrender to the claim and government of his Lord. He has presented himself to God, 6 verse 13. He has presented his body a living sacrifice, 12 verse 1. He has recognized with a penitent wonder and joy that he is but the limb of a body and that his head is the Lord. His thought is now not for his personal rights, his individual exaltation, but for the glory of his head, for the fulfillment of the thought of his head, and for the health and wealth of the body, as the great vehicle in the world of the gracious will of the head. It is among the chief and deepest of the characteristics of Christian ethics, this passive root below a rich growth and harvest of activity. All through the New Testament we find it expressed or suggested. The first beatitude uttered by the Lord, Matthew 5.3, is given to the poor, the mendicant in spirit. The last, John 20.29, 20, is for the believer who trusts without seeing. The radiant portrait of holy love, 1 Corinthians 13, produces its effects full of indescribable life as well as beauty by the combination of almost none but negative touches. The total abstinence of the loving soul from impatience, from envy, from self-display, from self-seeking, from brooding over wrong, from even the faintest pleasure in evil, from the tendency to think ill of others. Everywhere, the gospel bids the Christian take sides against himself. He is to stand ready to forego even his surest rights, if only he is hurt by so doing, while on the other hand, he is watchful to respect even the least obvious rights of others, yea, to consider their weaknesses and their prejudices to the furthest just limit. He is not to resist evil, in the sense of never fighting for self as self. He is rather to suffer himself to be defrauded, 1 Corinthians 6, 7, than to bring discredit on his Lord in however a due course of law. The straits and humiliations of his earthly lot, if such things are the will of God for him, are not to be materials for his discontent or occasions for his envy or for his secular ambition. They are to be his opportunities for inward triumph, 
the theme of a song of the Lord, in which he is to sing of strength perfected in weakness, of a power not his own overshadowing him. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Such is the passivity of the saints, deep beneath their serviceable activity. The two are in vital connection. The root is not the accident, but the proper antecedent of the product. For the secret and unostentatious surrender of the will, in its Christian sense, is no mere evacuation, leaving the house swept but empty. It is the reception of the Lord of life into the open castle of the city of Mansoul. It is the placing in his hands of all that the walls contain, and placed in his hands the castle and the city will show at once and continually more and more that not only order but life has taken possession. The surrender of the Muslim is, in its theory, a mere submission. The surrender of the gospel is a reception also, and thus its nature is to come out in the fruit of the Spirit. Once more, let us not forget that the Apostle lays his main emphasis here, rather on being than on doing. Nothing is said of great spiritual enterprises. Everything has to do with the personal conduct of the men who, if such enterprises are done, must do them. This too is characteristic of the New Testament. Very rarely do the apostles say anything about their converts' duty, for instance, to carry the message of Christ around them in evangelistic aggression. Such aggression was assuredly attempted, and in numberless ways, by the primeval Christians, from those who were scattered abroad, Acts 8.4, after the death of Stephen onwards. The Philippians 2, verses 15 and 16, shone as lights in the world, holding out the word of life. The Ephesians 5, verse 13, penetrated the surrounding darkness, being themselves light in the Lord. The Thessalonians, first letter, chapter 1, verse 8, made their witness felt in Macedonia and Archaea and in every place. The Romans, encouraged by St. Paul's presence and sufferings, were bold to speak the word without fear. Philippians 1.14. St. John, third epistle, verse 7, alludes to missionaries who for the name's sake went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. Yet is it not plain that when the apostles thought of the life and zeal of their converts, their first care by far was that they should be wholly conformed to the will of God in personal and social matters. This was the indispensable condition to their being, as a community, what they must be if they were to prove true witnesses and propagandists for their Lord. God forbid that we should draw from this phenomenon one inference, however faint, to thwart or discredit the missionary zeal now in our day rising like a fresh, pure tide in the believing church. May our master continually animate his servants in the church at home to seek the lost around them, to recall the lapsed with the voice of truth and love. May he multiply a hundredfold the scattered host of his witnesses in the uttermost parts of the earth through the dwelling places of those 800 millions who are still pagan, not to speak of the lesser yet vast multitudes of misbelievers, Mohammedan and Jewish. But neither in missionary enterprise nor in any sort of activity for God and man is this deep suggestion of the epistles to be forgotten. What the Christian does is even more important than what he says. What he is is the all-important antecedent to what he does. He is nothing yet as he ought to be if, amidst even innumerable efforts and aggressions, he has not presented his body a living sacrifice for his Lord's purposes, not his own, if he has not learnt in his Lord an unaffected love, a holy family affection, a sympathy with griefs and joys around him, a humble esteem of himself and the blessed art of giving way to wrath and of overcoming evil in the good in the presence of the Lord. End of chapter 26